Hello, my name is Steve Caselli. I'm the executive director of the International Cardio-Oncology Society. This is the podcast of our society. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Greg Armstrong. Uh, Greg is currently serving in the Department of Epidemiology and Cancer Control at St. Jude's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. He's also associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. So welcome, Dr. Armstrong. Thanks for joining me today. Great, Steve. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, it's always good to to meet people and working in different aspects of cardio-oncology, and that's part of the reason we wanted to talk with you today. But given um, just that cardio-oncology is such a recent developing field, I wonder if you could tell us briefly kind of how you got involved in, in this discipline. Yeah, happy to do so. And and I may argue that it's it's not so recently uh, developed of a field. I we can go back to the 1970s and 80s when we first learned that anthracycline chemotherapy uh, caused or was associated with cardiomyopathy, uh, and that it was a very much related to the dose that a higher dose causes a higher risk for cardiomyopathy. And so as oncologists, we've known that now for decades. Um, but I think what really has emerged is that the the larger community. Um, beyond medical and pediatric oncology, including the cardiology community and the general practice community, has is now seeing patients with these cardiomyopathies. And so, in fact, uh, the the field has boomed, uh, but we've actually known about it for quite a while. That's interesting. Yeah, I think um, I've heard that there are research studies going back that far, but it does seem like it, the field has really caught on in recent years. And your focus is really pediatric oncology the epidemiology of childhood cancer survivors. Is that right? That's right. I'm both a pediatric oncologist and an epidemiologist. So I'm I'm keenly aware of both patient care on a practical level, but also larger epidemiologic work that really has defined the field and what we know about survivors of childhood cancer. And I think, you know, in some sense, for most people, even in cardio-oncology, you think about a survivor of childhood cancer, and it seems like a pretty small minority group, a small population, but there's actually now over half a million survivors of childhood cancer in the United States. And one out of 750 persons in the United States is a survivor of childhood cancer. So in fact, uh, we have a growing number of survivors and a growing number of general practitioners and cardiologists who are now seeing these survivors as they age into adulthood uh, and then become adults who have their own families but then develop long-term cardiac conditions based on the treatment they received as children. And what are what are some of those late-term impacts for childhood cancer in particular? Is there are there certain patterns that you see, or is it a wide variety of different issues? Or what are some? No, of I'm glad you asked because because they're very different than the patterns uh, that adult cardiologists and medical oncologists see in their populations, where uh, for them, they may have a, a 65-year-old with cancer who then develops heart failure uh, or a 65-year-old with heart failure who then develops cancer and you're, you're managing multimorbidity um, in an aging or older patient. Our, our population is very different. In general, when they were a child, they were young and healthy other than their cancer. Uh, so we often treated them with higher doses and greater exposures of radiation and chemotherapy than an adult would have ever tolerated. Mm. But now what we're learning as they age across the lifespan, as they are no longer children, even no longer adolescents, but are adults in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, that there are late developing cardiac sequelae 
that never reared their ugly head early on, but only later. And I think it's that late onset of toxicity, that that long time to the development of toxicity that really lulls us to sleep, both as investigators and as clinicians. So I think one of the key messages I'd want to put out is that the healthy long-term survivor of childhood cancer is healthy for now, but they have a tremendous risk, even in their 20s, 30s, 40s, for developing treatment-related cardiac disease. And so just because they look well now doesn't mean they shouldn't be seen, shouldn't be evaluated annually. There are many of them, because of their treatment exposures, are extremely high risk for future disease. And so you asked, uh, what disease? What, what, what cardiomyopathies yeah. or what cardiac diseases, cardiovascular diseases do we see? So I'll, I'll sort of run through this quickly. Yeah. Cardiomyopathy from anthracyclines and radiation, for sure. We see patients who will be stable for decades and then to drop their ejection fraction or systolic function uh, in a classical way. Uh, or perhaps diastolic dysfunction in more of a non-classical way. But either way, begin to indicate that their heart uh, is failing and that they've had an underlying myopathy that's been compensated for, but is now being discovered. So sort of classic cardiac, you know, cardiomyopathy that's anthracycline or radiation related. But in addition, chest-directed radiation can do some pretty terrible things, including uh, high, increasing risk for coronary artery disease, increasing risk for valvular disease, increasing risk for pericardial disease. And then we're beginning to learn more about uh, stroke and vasculopathies as well, but those are lesser known entities. Mm. And what are some of the factors that would determine the heart health of childhood cancer survivors? Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's a very important question. Well, number one, by far and away, is their treatment exposure. Even mm. if they're 40, the yeah. main thing that's driving their risk for early onset heart failure is not only the type of chemotherapy or radiation they receive, but the dose. So anthracycline family of drugs such as doxorubicin, donorubicin, epirubicin, um, they're associated with long-term cardiomyopathy in a dose-dependent fashion. So as a provider, it's really important to know not only what drug they had, but also the total dose if you really want to know what their risk is. And the same is true for radiation. It's really critical to understand uh, not only whether they did have chest radiation, but what was the dose of that chest radiation and how much of it impacted the heart? Those are all critical factors. But there's other factors as well. We know that anthracyclines, for example, many studies have shown that females may be more sensitive as children mm -hmm. to anthracyclines or if they're younger at anthracycline exposures. Children who in their first three or four years of life uh, in many studies have higher risk for future heart failure than those who are older. All mm -hmm. studies don't point to that, but many do. And so we consider those risk factors as well. But I would say the most interesting piece and the most practical for the cardio-oncology community are the risk factors we've more recently identified. So if you think about a survivor of childhood cancer who had their exposure to anthracyclines or radiation at a young age, and now they're in their 30s or 40s, you know full well many of them are developing obesity, hypertension, mm -hmm. diabetes, dyslipidemia, or beginning to smoke, or smoking. And um, all those are traditional cardiovascular risk factors. And Steve, up until the last few years, we didn't know whether those had an impact. Many people said, ah, compared to their radiation and chemo, those things are fairly minor. But it ends up that's not true. Uh, and it ends up what's really concerning is that uh, the impact of these additional cardiovascular risk factors is more than additive. Meaning you would expect if you had anthracyclines and then started, uh, then developed obesity and dyslipidemia, that you'd increase your risk. 
but probably in an additive way. One plus one equals two. But what we've learned through research and through our large cohort studies following survivors of childhood cancer is that the risk is nearly multiplicative. So one plus one may equal more like four or five. Um, so for example, when we looked at patients who had anthracyclines and then developed hypertension as they age, their risk for cardiomyopathy uh, increased tremendously. Not, again, additive, but almost multiplicative. And so as an epidemiologist, when I see a risk factor that's causing near mul multiplicative increase in risk, we all have to step back and go, whoa, uh, we need to do something about that. So, so my, my plea to the cardio-oncology community is while we can't go back and change the dose of chest radiation or anthracycline administration to a given patient, you can manage these traditional cardiovascular risk factors. And, and you're probably doing more than you think when you get a patient under good control with these risk factors. Hmm. That's, that's amazing. And so I, you were the principal investigator on what appears to be a landmark study titled Therapy-Related Cardiac Risk in Cancer, Childhood Cancer Survivors. I think it was published in 2019. Is are a lot of the um, results that you're sharing with me here, are they found in that study in particular? Well, uh, I'm the principal investigator of the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, which is an NIH-funded cohort of 37,000 adult survivors of childhood cancer. And we actually published a number of papers last year on this topic, and the one you mentioned is one of them. Okay. Um, the, the two that I would probably flag in the last year uh, as, as critical, the one you mentioned identified that there's really no safe dose of chest radiation. And many times we'll look and say, oh, well, they had only 10 or 15 gray of chest radiation. That can't impact their heart. But that first paper identified, and here's the punchline, low doses of chest radiation to high volumes of the heart. So a low dose across the whole volume of the heart mm. actually is associated with heart failure. And the flip side, a high dose to a very small part of the heart okay. is also at risk. And so that, I think, you know, it used to be we only worried about patients if they had 25 or 30 gray of chest radiation, a very high dose. But now I think we have to be a little more concerned for patients who've had uh, lower doses, but higher volumes or lower volume, lower, uh, higher volumes, lower doses, this kind of combination. So um, that was one thing. There was That paper was in the Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, in 2019. There was another paper that I think was very important as well, and really one of a series of papers. Um, that looked at all the risk factors you mentioned. Uh, we talked about risk factors, but what patients really want and really what a clinician really wants is a calculator, a bedside calculator that can calculate risk for a patient, that you could input your treatment information and input your cardiovascular risk factors and identify what your personal risk is, much like a Framingham calculator, which is obviously a, a very historical work in the cardiology field. And so Eric Chow and others from the Childhood Cancer Survivors Study, have published in, an, in a series of papers, but most recently last year in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, um, their, their, um, their individual risk calculator. And that calculator is available at our study website, which is, uh, if you could just Google Childhood Cancer Survivor Study and go to our website, you can find the, the cardiovascular risk calculator, which uh, we're really excited for clinicians to use at the bedside. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, we'll have to put a link to that on our website as well. Um, are, so if if you're a, a patient listening to this or a childhood cancer survivor listening to this, 
what would be just two or three things that you would say would be most critical in terms of either lifestyle or follow-up care or treatment um, that you would recommend for somebody who's who's a survivor? Yeah. Well, first is just simply to have a visit with your clinician once a year. Many of our survivors are at high risk but are not uh, having annual follow-up with any kind of provider. Um, secondly, if you do have a provider, it's important that you're getting risk-based care. And risk-based care means that some provider looks at the treatment you had and can identify what you're at risk for. You know, if you didn't have anthracyclines or chest radiation, you may not be at risk for early heart disease or higher risk for cardiac disease. So that may not be a risk for you. So understanding your treatment uh, exposures are very important. And so that's why the community has come up with a survivorship care plan. Mm -hmm. Ideally, every patient treated before they leave their primary oncologist should leave with a survivorship care plan, a care plan that not only outlines their treatment information, but it outlines what they're at risk for based on that treatment information and what screening studies they should have. And so a survivor who has that care plan can walk even into their primary care office and say, hey, look, here's what I'm at risk for. Here's what the recommended screenings are. Please, let's do this together. And so that's what I'd say to a survivor is, is to know, know your own treatment exposures and, and identify a relationship with a physician um, where they will use that care plan and, and follow you closely. And if you can't do that, maybe identify um, a larger survivorship clinic where there's an expertise maybe at a major cancer center, an expertise in long-term survivorship. That's great. Do you see progress in terms of survivorship clinics giving attention to cardiovascular implications? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's one of the big red flags in the field. Um, it's a shame to beat cancer and then die of cardiac disease. It just shouldn't right. happen. I mean, we, we, we don't want to beat this great enemy of cancer and then leave someone to develop, you know, long-term cardiac disease. And the difficulty of that is that's often happening in their 30s and 40s when they now themselves have their own families and their own occupations and, and things. And so um, I think the community is becoming more involved. I'm particularly proud of the cardiology community um, that is rallying around uh, this important issue, uh, identifying patients early, seeing them in cardiology clinics. And I think we've moved a long way from a decade or two ago where if a survivor went to a cardiologist and, you know, maybe had a, a drop in their ejection fraction, they were, you know, treated like anyone else in the community that was otherwise healthy because they did look healthy. But now I think people understand that that background of being a cancer survivor and particularly exposure to anthracyclines, chest radiation for, for our survivors of childhood cancer, they're not the same as everybody else. And they, they need vigilant follow-up. They need aggressive intervention. Yeah. And what what kinds of developments are you seeing on the preventative side in terms of um, new therapies that are coming out that are less cardiotoxic, or um, what what do you see as sort of the the near term future of of pediatric treatment that gets you excited? Yeah, well, I think we're getting better in pediatrics about using desrazoxane, which is a cardioprotectant, and um, I think. A decade ago, there were some concerns that desrazoxane may increase risk for cancer recurrence, but uh, or or new cancer development. But I think those risks have largely largely been laid to rest, and I think our community is now safely using desrazoxane, which will hopefully uh, reduce rates of cardiac disease in the future. But I think the verdict, the ultimate verdict on whether it reduces risk for heart failure, is out. Uh, while there is a lot of good data showing that it reduces short-term 
or um, subclinical echo um, outcomes for sure. Um, so that that's one thing is is real cardio protection by desoxin. We've also learned to reduce doses up front. There are populations of children with cancer who don't need the high doses of anthracyclines and chest radiation that was being given in the 70s and 80s. So simply reduction of therapy up front is reducing risk. Um, and then I think screening and surveillance. So there are guidelines for long-term follow-up of these survivors, and they're based on the Children's Oncology Group long-term follow-up guidelines for children and adolescent survivors of cancer. And that can be found at the Children's Oncology Group website. And because there's guidelines uh, for the United States, and then there are also guidelines for uh, the Netherlands and England and Scotland, um, there's there's now concerted efforts to um, to use screening and surveillance-based approaches to reduce risk. So um, each of these groups have uh, algorithms for periodic echocardiography and, and clinical follow-up if they are at high risk. And so I think uh, we can be hopeful that screening and surveillance may reduce risk, at least identify disease early and give us a chance, unlike in the past, to potentially intervene and maybe change the course. Yeah, that's excellent. And what, what do you see as some of the, the biggest challenges still before the, the oncology community, particularly pediatric oncology in these areas that we're talking about? Well, Where for pediatric you... oncology, it's really that uh, our population is still a rare population um, mm -hmm. and that any cardiologist or any general practitioner may have one childhood cancer survivor in their practice or none. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is the major challenge and that there's nobody out there who's really comfortable um, in adult cardiology world or general practice world of saying, you know, we need all, there's no one who's going to have enough patients to be comfortable. And it's no one's going to have enough patients that we can go to family practice meetings and internal medicine meetings and have these discussions and it be impactful. And so that, that's, that's a real danger. And, and so it means the survivor has to be their own advocate. They have to have their survivorship care plan. They need to educate their physician on the risk. Um, and I, I wish it didn't have to be that way. I wish, um, you know, if every cardiologist and general practitioner had, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 childhood cancer survivors, it would be a different world. But it's not that way. So I think that really is one of the major challenges. Yeah, if that makes sense. Is there anything else about um, either your current research or your current practice that you um, you would want to share with our listeners today? Well, we're now really thinking about interventions, interventions that can change the course and the direction for many of our survivors. And um, we have interventions that are looking to further define uh, how many patients out there have subclinical disease that hasn't been detected or have modifiable cardiovascular risk factors that have not been managed and get them into general practice for management. Um, and we have interventions that are going to consider things like cardiac rehabilitation not on survivors who already have cardiac disease, but those who are at risk but have not yet developed cardiac disease in an effort to try to prevent development of cardiomyopathy. So the idea is, is can we help the population um, through cardiac rehab or exercise interventions yeah. improve yeah. or at least stabilize or put off risk um, for cardiac disease? And, and we hope that's the case. Yeah, at the conference this weekend that you and I were talking about um, earlier, one of the striking things to me was just how impactful exercise is on breast cancer survivors and cardiac health. I assume that's true for children as well. 
Well, we know less about that. There's really some great data in the breast cancer world on the impact of exercise. We have done several studies um, on exercise, again, last year uh, from our Childhood Cancer Survivor Study in uh, JAMA Oncology, uh, a major high-impact journal in the cancer world. We showed that those survivors who exercise in our cohort have uh, reduced risk for long-term mortality for multiple reasons. Um, and then more recently, here at St. Jude, we we did a study where we looked at 1,200 survivors and we did maximal stress testing to look at their exercise tolerance and found that two-thirds of survivors exposed to radiation or anthracyclines have exercise intolerance. Their VO2 max is less than 80% predicted. And so they may look well, but they're not uh, not—they're not entirely healthy below the surface. And I think that's an, Im- an important thing um, is that one has to then be hopeful that can can ex- that can exercise improve that. And in fact, in that study, those who were exercising were less likely to have exercise intolerance, as you can imagine. So yeah. I hope that through exercise, we can build a, a stronger heart and a stronger survivor. Yeah. But I'll be honest, exercise is very excited to get about it. it. It's interesting to get excited about exercise. We also know those are very difficult interventions to get people to exercise or to be consistent with exercise. There's been many, many, many exercise interventions that have failed and so uh, or failed the longevity test so yeah. uh, it's a, it's very difficult yeah true true for the healthy population right so yep yeah that's great well i really appreciate everything you shared with us super insightful and incredibly helpful and very practical in so many ways as well so let me ask you this when you're not doing research and in clinic caring for patients, uh, how do you spend your time? Uh, well, I, yeah, pretty busy. I mean, we, between research and patient care, that that's the majority of my time. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a a large family with five children and, um, it's pretty nice thing to, to have them to leave work behind and and leave my distractions at work sometimes. So, uh, feel blessed because of that. That's great. Well, I really appreciate your time today and all the best in your work going forward. I hope that uh, we can talk again in the near future. This is um, so informative. I really appreciate it. Well, and Steve, thank you in the work with ICOS uh, and making your mission to to increase the knowledge and the awareness of cardio-oncology as a field, but also the really the needs of our patients. It's really a, a crucial thing, and we're thankful for it. Well, it's been a, a blessing and a privilege for me to be a part of it. So thank you again for your work. Thank you, Steve. Okay, all the best. All right, bye. If any of our listeners would like more information about cardio-oncology or ICOS, you can go to our website, which is ic-os.org, and there you'll find a number of helpful resources.